0: Holy Spirit, we just invite you here in our hearts. We say that you are welcome in this place. You're welcome in our lives. And we thank you that your spirit is here, that you are working among us. And we just declare that to be so. Even if we don't feel it, even if we don't sense it with our senses right now by faith, we just say you're welcome here. Come and do what you want to do in us. And I pray for mindsets to change today, for revelation to happen, for courses to be corrected, and for you to be seen and lifted high. And we pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's give Jesus some praise and then we'll grab a seat. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So good to worship together. It's so good to be in what we call the house of the Lord, even though this is just a an industrial building, but when his people come together, it becomes a place of the gathered community of believers, and it's, it's an awesome thing to see that happen. Uh, we are in our series called Top Ten, and we're going through these Ten Commandments uh, that You know, not as a checklist, like if we could somehow do these, we'd be right with God. But is there an invitation for us to draw closer to Jesus as a result to looking at these principles that have been set forth? And and there is. And so we've gone through several of these and we've come all the way to the eighth commandment, which is found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. Very short, four words. It just simply says, You shall not steal. Like, wouldn't you like to have my job right now? It's like, you got to just, again, don't do that. And we're good, right? But I think there's so much more to this when we look at this and we invite the Holy Spirit to come into this uh, and breathe through the word of God, that there's so much more, even on the surface, when we open up our hearts to what God wants to speak, even through something like this. And so I think a lot of us would just answer right out of the gate and say, well, you know, I haven't robbed anybody lately, <laughs> so maybe I'm good here. I haven't, you know, broke into somebody's house or anything like that, and so I don't know how this really applies to me, uh, but maybe maybe you've had this experience that I've had, and many of you guys have probably had this, where you walk into a store, you go around, you, you look for what you're trying to find, you can't find what you're looking for, and you start to walk out, and then you have that thought like, I didn't buy anything. Everyone thinks I'm, what am I doing here? Just act natural as I walk out of this place because I did nothing wrong. And so you try to act natural. Do I put my hands in my pockets? Do I take them out? Do I let them see that I have nothing in my hands? You know, And, and so like, you kind of have that thought. At least I have that thought. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one. Uh, but let me ask a different question. How you guys have ever had something stolen from you before? Has anybody ever had something stolen? Almost everybody. It was the same last night. Almost everybody's had something stolen from them. And so we're touched by this, even in small ways. For me, I remember when I was a, just a kid, I don't know, I was probably 11 years old or so. And I remember one of my friends asked to borrow, I think it was 75 cents from me. And 75 cents, when you're a kid, I mean, you guys know, that might as well be a million dollars, right? I mean, it was 75 cents, but I wanted to be a, a good friend, and, and so I let him borrow the 75 cents. A couple days later, came back. He was supposed to pay me back. I went back and I said, hey, you, you owe me the 75 cents, and he kind of, with a half smirk on his face, say, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't borrow 75 cents from you. He was a little bit bigger than me, so I didn't really challenge it too much, but I remember years later, even... Even within the last 15 years, since we started this church, I can tell you that. Since we started the church, I remember I was in my prayer time one time, and I all of a sudden I had this thought. And I remembered that kid who stole the 75 cents from me. And I realized I am still offended and bitter over that kid from when I was 11 years old, over 75 cents. And I had, to have, I had to go into a repentance session and to forgive and to go through this whole process because I had no idea how much that stuck with me. I mean, you guys know, sometimes little things can stick with you, right? So a lot of us have been touched by this, but I want to ask the question right out of the gate here. Why do we steal? Why do even, you know, what's the motivation And I've come up with just two reasons. You may come up with more, but the the reasons I believe that people actually do steal is number one, because of greed, which means that we have this mindset that there's never enough, like nothing's ever going to satisfy us. And so people do that. I remember uh, hearing a story a long time ago about John D. Rockefeller. How many of you guys heard John D. Rockefeller? He was one of the wealthiest men who've ever lived. And, I mean, built an empire in the 1800s. And, and the story goes that a reporter came and asked him one time. They said, how much money is it going to take to make you happy? And John Rockefeller looked back and said this. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Eventually he gave a ton away and all that type of stuff. But that's the mindset. That it's just a little bit more that's going to make me happy. And some of us think, yeah, that's what rich people do. Like, they're, they're greedy and it's just a little bit more. But how many of you guys know that, that what we would consider poor people can sometimes be more greedy than rich people at times? I mean, how many get-rich-quick schemes are there out there to try to get rich and take you from being poor to having a lot? They're marketed to people who don't have anything. And so this idea of greed is like that there's never enough. And it can drive us to try to take more than what we have in whatever form. The second reason would be lack. Like if you lack something, I mean, if you think about, you know, you're trying to provide in some way that you can't and you have lack, what is lack driven by? Lack is driven by never enough. There's never enough. It's the same thing, that there's a a need on the inside of us that says there's never enough. It's a scarcity mentality. It's a fear of the future. But how do you guys know that you can have everything that you need and still have a lack mentality? You can have everything that you need materially and still have a poverty mentality. How many of you guys, let me me just put it this way. How many of you guys have ever worried about paying the bills while you had money in the bank? Has anybody ever been there? See, that's a lack mentality. That's like, I have what I need, but I'm still fearing the future. And so sometimes we can have everything that we need. We can even have stuff paid for. We can have, you know, all of our needs provided for. And yet we still have a lack mentality. It's a scarcity mentality. And so, both of these, both greed and lust, are the result of not trusting God in some area of our life. And so, this is an important deal because we can kind of locate where we are, even if we haven't robbed somebody lately. There may be some of these things in our heart where we're not trusting God. So, I have three questions for us today to ponder. And the first question is very simple Am I stealing? And again, some of us might, no, I haven't robbed anybody lately. Well, let me just give you some ways that maybe even as believers that we might be stealing and may not count it at stealing. Um, maybe, maybe fudging a few numbers on our taxes that we think, well, the government already takes enough anyway, so I'm just going to, you know, be okay with taking a little bit of that back, you know. So we kind of justify certain things. Um, Maybe trying to get people to pay us cash so we don't have to report certain things. Uh, these are all ways that we can sometimes uh, try to get around things. How about this one? How about not tithing? That was as quiet as it's going to get in this place, I'll tell you that. But the scripture says, well, that's, that's stealing from God. And yet we do that. I mean, believers do that all the time. Uh, maybe taking an extended break at work when you know you should not, you're stealing time from an employer. Um, there, there's just many ways that we could do this, maybe using a business card for something you know is personal. I mean, you know it's a really personal lunch, you know it's really personal coffee or whatever it is, and you go ahead and use your business card and try to justify it and say, well, you know, I, I've done a lot of extra. And so, so the question then becomes, what is the price for our integrity? Is it a cup of coffee? Like, is that our price for our integrity? So there are several ways that even as believers, even if you're not going into a 7-Eleven or a quick trip holding the gun to somebody, that we can still have to wrestle with this. And Dwayne Vanderklok, in one of his books, he asked this question, he said, "Which, which is worse, stealing from a poor person who you know if you steal from them, they're going to know it's missing and they're going to be hurt by it, or stealing from a rich person who they would never even know that it's gone? And if there was a part of you that said, well, of course, stealing from the poor person is worse, then you've been discipled by culture rather than scripture. Because the Bible says it's all the same. How many of you guys know that the little things are just as important to God as the big things? And it doesn't matter whether it's a dollar or $10 million, it's all the same. Sin is sin. And even if that doesn't locate where we're at, let let me just give you a different way that God led me to think about stealing this week. And which is like a crazy thought. Like God had me start to think about stealing this week. And so, but let me give you a different way to think about what stealing is. Here's what stealing is stealing is a shortcut to get something that would normally take a process to obtain. You think about taking something, normally there would be a process, there would be earning money to accumulate enough money to purchase this good or this whatever it is. So, stealing is a shortcut to get something that would normally take a process to obtain. So let me ask you this in a different way. Am I trying to take a shortcut in some area of my life because I don't trust God? Am I trying to take a shortcut to avoid a process in some area of my life because I don't trust God? We, we looked at Abraham last week, and we know that Abraham was called a man of faith. He was the father of faith. He, God came to him with this covenant we talked about last week, and and, you know, said, hey, you're going to have as many descendants as the stars that you can count in the sky. Problem was Abraham didn't have any and he was old. And so he believed God and that was counted to him as righteousness. He was the father of faith and God told him to leave, leave his country and to go into this land that God promised he would give him. But somewhere along the way, Abraham decides to try to take a detour. And it says in, in, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, it says, now there was a famine in the land. And so Abram went down to Egypt. Now, Egypt in scripture, a lot of times just represents the worldly ways or the world. And so even if you look at that, he, he took a detour down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. And, and what Abraham thought was going to be a shortcut or it eventually turned into a detour What he thought was going to be a shortcut around the famine turned into this detour that we see in verse 11. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, he says, I know that you're a beautiful woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, hey, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. I want you to see what's happening there. Abraham started to already doubt the promise that God just made to him. Remember, God said that I'm going to give you descendants. He doesn't have any yet. He goes and he takes a shortcut that turns into a detour and he's already doubting because he believes that he's going to get killed even before the promise can start to happen. How many of you guys know that doubt is the opposite of Abraham's identity? He's the man of faith, but now doubt comes in and causes them to com- compromise. So doubt was this major detour and ultimately doubt does lead us to compromise. And watch what happens in Genesis chapter 12 verse 13. It says, Abraham says to his wife, he says, Say you are my sister, that it will go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, and the Egyptians saw that the woman was beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and females and all this stuff because of that. So he thinks he's getting ahead. By taking this shortcut. He thinks he's getting ahead by compromising. He thinks he's getting ahead by taking this detour. But many times the shortcut turns out to be the longest road you could actually take. And so he takes this. And, and what, what starts off as one decision starts to multiply in a domino effect to other decisions. Because this actually, this same scenario will happen again. He does this same thing again. It starts a series of events. And then it triggers Sarah to start to doubt the promise. And she says, hey, we're still old. We don't have any descendants. How about you go into my maidservant and maybe we'll have an heir through her. And then it gets passed down to their kids. When they finally do have Isaac, this miracle child, that that he actually does the same thing that Abram does here. He makes the same mistake as you read on. And so the thing about shortcuts is that they just delay us from the real thing. Shortcuts become a substitute for the real thing. The, the thing is, we want to have joy. And so we try to take a shortcut to joy. So we try to surround ourselves and fill our lives with things we think are going to make us happy. But how I many of you guys know that happiness, these things that we think are going to make us happy, they don't really make us happy. They don't really bring us joy. And so all they do is prolong real joy from happening. Shortcuts become a detour, becomes compromise, which ends up delaying. How, how about this? How about you have a call to ministry on your life? You know, the Bible says that he who's faithful in little will be faithful in much. And instead of going through the process that God has us go through, we try to find a position to shortcut the process and take a position. But how many of you guys know that a position, if you obtain a position anywhere, whether it be business or in ministry, that you didn't go through the process required to get you there will not last. Eventually, you will not be able to stand because you shortcutted the process. And so the shortcut becomes a substitute. Now, why do these things happen? Why did it happen for Abraham? Let's look back for Abraham. It says what? It says there was a famine in the land. And because of a famine, he went on a detour, tried to take a shortcut that led to compromise. Why do these things happen in our life? Because of a spiritual famine in our life. Somewhere there's a famine. Somewhere we have not been feeding the right things in our life. And so we try to shortcut the process here's what's interesting. After all of this, Abraham ends up right back where he started at the beginning. See, he tried to take a shortcut, but he ended up wasting all of this time in his life because he started on a process that God never intended for him to be on that he now had to go through the real process all over again. (laughs) Whenever we try to skip over the process there's going to, you're going to go through the process to get to the promised land. You're going to go through a process. The question is, how long will it take? How, how many detours will you take along the way? So stealing is like a shortcut to something that would normally take a process. And there's something in us that simply says, God, I don't trust your path, so I'm going to try to make my own. But here's what I want you to know. There are some things, God wants you to see some amazing things in life. He wants you to experience some amazing things. He's got a call on your life that is an amazing thing that you will only see when you go through the process. You will only see when you, when you get out of the car and start hiking on the trail. I told you guys that we went to, uh, you know, went to Glacier National Park a couple weeks ago. And there, there's a lot of stuff you can see from the car, but there's some things you cannot See, And so I put together this video to kind of, I love to put pictures uh, with imagery that you can grab onto, and maybe this will stick with somebody, so take a look. We're getting ready to go on Going to the Sun Road for the very first time. As soon as we cross this four-way thing, I think we're on... Going to the Sun Road. let's see, I think, maybe it's, let's see what it says. We're on it. it Supposedly the most scenic road in America. Something like that. I have no idea. You're just making that up. No, I just read it. It's on there somewhere. As awesome as this iconic road is, there are some of the most beautiful things in this world that you simply cannot see from your car. So Becca and I hiked 89 miles in six days because we wanted to see some of those things, and there are no shortcuts to get there. So we saw some of the most beautiful scenery that we've ever seen. I mean, we saw mountains, strangely colored lakes. We saw hidden waterfalls. We saw some views that you can't even experience unless you actually leave the land and venture out onto the water. And yet as beautiful as those scenes were, we were frustrated with almost every single picture or every single video that we took. Okay, this is Virginia Falls and iPhone can't capture the scale of how tall that is. It's flattening everything out. Frustrated because as much as we wanted to capture those things to remember and to show them, there's no substitute for actually being there. There's no substitute for putting in the miles, for being present in the process. And there are some things that God wants you to experience that require no shortcuts, no substitutes, no cheat sheet, Yet when you walk at God's Way, you see things you never thought you would see. We are looking at Avalanche Lake. Becca's crying. I'm crying. That's how beautiful it you is. You can't even understand what we're seeing here. The, I, yeah, you can't even tell. It, there's, there are waterfalls just rushing down that, so high. Like we've never seen anything like this. It's like it's like the Garden of Eden. It's like God put a little bit of everything in this national park. I have never I've seen a lot of stuff, and I've never seen what I've seen today. Picture as we are filming at the same time. <laughs> the mosquito. A <laughs> uh, little bit of everything. Trust the process. Take no shortcuts. This says to God, I trust your ways. Now, I show you that because I want you to to think about when I see that video, I have a different perspective than what you have. And I know I could hear many people saying, oh, man, look how beautiful that is. Like, oh, crazy. It's nothing like being there. And those of you guys who have been to mountains or wherever you've been, you know, whatever picture you take is nothing like being there. And there's some things that you cannot see from your car. There's some things that God wants wants you to see, some beautiful things. And some of us want to just take a shortcut to get there. And as, as much as those are in the natural, I want you to know there are things in the spirit, there are things in your family, there are things in your marriage that God wants you to see, that there are no shortcuts to get there. No shortcuts to get there. So am I stealing? Am I trying to take a shortcut to try to do something that would normally take a process? Number two, question number two, it may sound a little bit strange we were talking about stealing, but here it is. Am I a giver? Why, why do I say that? Because if you go into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, it says this. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but let, rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to, here it is, to share with anyone in need. The amazing thing about God is that he can take a thief and not just that they no longer steal, but he takes a thief and turns them into a generous person. He, you know, ta- a taker is the opposite of a giver. But what the message is here is that God won't just take you and turn you from a, a, a bad person, we would say, into someone who's not doing bad things, but God takes it further. And he gives us, and I want to give you just a little theological perspective just on a relationship with God here, but he gives us his gift of righteousness, what is righteousness? Well, Righteousness is literally, it means right standing with God. But let's look at what, how this happens in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. We can see the transformation. We can see how it happens. Not just from a taker to not taking, but from a taker to a giver. It says, for if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one. What's he talking about there? He's talking about Adam in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned. And through one offense, through one sin, guilt was passed down to all generations. The death reigned through the one much more through the one who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. We have Adam, through sin came and passed down, but through Jesus, when you're in Christ, you not only, you get the gift of righteousness. Therefore, as through the one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through the one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience Many will be made righteous. So Adam sinned, and that's passed down to all generations. Our own righteousness is what? Paul says they are filthy rags. But when you come in Christ, just like Adam's sin was passed on to you, when you are in Christ, Christ's righteousness is passed on to you. Righteousness is a gift from God, not because we're so perfect or we're so great, but because He's so perfect and He's so great, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. How? Jesus wore our guilt so that we could wear his innocence. It's not that the law was relaxed. It's that the law was satisfied in Jesus Christ. That, his, that our debt was paid, but it goes even beyond that, that we now move from just not sinning anymore, to now having a positive favor of the right standing with God. How I many you guys know that's like going from being a taker to not taking, but that's going further and saying, now you're a generous person. It's like, I used to be a sinner, but now I'm not a sinner anymore. But, no, but not only am I not a sinner, but I'm actually in right standing and have righteousness with God. It brought me from not just being, uh, not to a morally neutral position with God, but to a positive favor with God. That's pretty amazing, Right? All right, so I was reading this book, and here's a quote from this book about this. It says, The moment you bow your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, all your sin is transferred to Christ's account and paid in full. Thank God for that. It was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago, but that's only half the gospel. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So we we deserve punishment. Mercy of God comes so that we do not endure punishment because of Jesus. But grace is getting what you don't deserve. So mercy moves us to a morally neutral place with God. Forgiveness, now we, as if we had not sinned. But then it says that the, the righteousness of Christ, that everything you've done wrong is now forgiven and forgotten. And everything, watch this, everything Christ did right, his righteousness is transferred to your account and God calls it Even. So God takes us not just from bad to morally neutral, but he takes us from, from sinner over to saint. Not based on our merit, but based on his righteousness. That's pretty amazing. That's really amazing. And so righteousness goes to this further level. That's what repentance is all about. Repentance is not just, I'm going this way and I'm going to stop going this way. Repentance is, I'm going this way and now I'm going to turn and go another way. I'm going to change my mindset and how I think about things of God. So this is what God can do. See, some of us have limited God. We say, well, this is the way I'm always going to be. Have you ever had that thought? This is the way I'm always gonna be. This is the way I'm wired. This is my personality. This is just the way things are. All, all my life I've been what some might call a challenger now some might call it challenging but I, it's it's a challenger like what I've always felt like I mean I would even as a kid i'd like I got to challenge that like that does not feel right I'm going to challenge that I'm going to challenge that and as a youth pastor a young administrator I'm going to challenge that and God used me in many ways to challenge things that other people wouldn't challenge and that's fine I've always known that kind of about how God has used me and about my personality and kind of how I'm wired and and there's nothing wrong with that if used well, which it doesn't always used well, but there's nothing wrong with that if used well. But while we were on this trip, somewhere around this trip as our 25th anniversary trip, God began to deal with me a little bit. He says, you've kind of been a Paul all your life. And Paul, if you look at his letters, I mean, he would challenge. I mean, he challenges the Corinthians. He would, he would have to correct and to challenge. He says, you've always been a Paul. But what I want to do in you is I want to add to you, I want to add a Barnabas to you. Now, if you don't know Barnabas, Barnabas's name, his name literally means Mr. Encouragement. That's the way I translate it. It means Mr. Encouragement. And I can tell you, challenging things flows easy out of me. Like, I don't have to work at it. I don't have to think about it, right? It just kind of happens. And I, and I mean a, a godly way to use that, okay? I don't have to wor- worry about how to do that. But encouragement... It's, it kind of doesn't flow naturally for me. I have to really work at it. I have to schedule encouragement on my calendar to get it done, right? But what God was saying is, as easily as I flow through you to, to challenge, and maybe in messages or preaching or whatever it is, and just conversations, that I'm gonna do a work in you by my spirit so deeply that... The result of the Spirit's work in you will flow out of you encouragement so that one day, maybe a year from now, five years from now, whenever it is, people won't necessarily look at you and say, well, that guy's a challenger. They might say that, but they might have a temptation to more say something like, well, that guy's Mr. Encouragement. you guys know that only God can do that, right? All I can do is rewind the tape five years from now and see if that's so. But what God has given me is he's given me a way that he works. See, sometimes we put God in a box and we say this is the way I'm always going to be. This is all God can do through me. This is, all, this is the way God works in me. But God wants to take takers and turn them into givers. He wants to take people and to completely change. So whatever box you have put God in may be represented by whatever box you've put yourself in. And you've limited like this is the way that God works through me. So, Am I a giver? Now, you might put whatever else in there that God is working you, working on you in. All right, last question is this. We'll try to, to wrap this thing up. And this may seem strange as well when we're talking about, like, don't steal. But here's the question. Am I being stolen from? Because this is where I do believe that somebody's gonna get free today. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Some of you guys know that the enemy comes to steal. He wants to steal from you. He wants to steal God's purposes in you. He wants to steal your hope. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal the process away from you that God is working in your life. He comes to try to do that. And here's what I want you to understand. This is what I felt impressed as I was preparing this week, that some of us are surrendering our fight. We stopped fighting. We've just allowed the enemy to gain territory in our life. We've allowed him to trespass. That's his job. That's what he's trying to do. But that's what we've done. Now, we talked about Abraham last week, and we talked about Jacob last week. Let's go back to Jacob. Jacob's the grandson of Abraham. And he had a brother. He had a twin brother named Esau. This is one of the famous stories of Jacob and Esau. They were quite different. I mean, Jacob is like, I mean, Esau's like this hunter guy, like this outdoorsman. He's all hairy. He stinks. He, I mean, he's just, he's just outside all the time. That's what he does. Jacob is more like that office cubicle guy, you know? I mean, he's like inside, indoors, probably doesn't have a tan. You know, he's just, he's, they're vastly different. They have different perspectives on life. Genesis chapter 25, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew... Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And uh, Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright now. Well, the birthright in that society represented quite a bit. The firstborn son, which was Esau, would have, you know, he would have had the birthright, which means like when they divide up the land, when the father passes away, he would get twice as much. He would rule over the other, you know, brothers, or he he would have the most influence. And so it's a pretty big deal in that society. And so Jacob is pretty audacious here to say, I got a bowl of soup. You got to wonder if he's like, You know, half kidding around, and then he sees how serious Esau is about this, and he starts getting this idea. He says, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. If I die, what good is my birthright? And so Esau says, I'm about to die. What what use is my birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and a little stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and he went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. Why would Esau surrender, give up, sell something of such immense value for something so little? And I believe the answer, there could be many answers to that question, but I'll just put one thought here. And it's one word, convenience. Convenience. It was in the moment. It was convenient. So I've said this many times. Be careful what you surrender for the sake of convenience. There's so many opportunities that are convenient moments. Be careful what you surrender for the sake of convenience. So Esau... He sells his birthright. Don't sell your birthright for a bowl of soup. Don't sell your calling of God or forfeit your calling of God for the sake of convenience because it'd be easier if I did this or it'd be better if I did this or it'd look better if I did this or I have more influence right now if I did this or if I said this or I'm gonna surrender my joy because I don't wanna wanna fight anymore. I don't wanna have a a godly fight in me anymore. I'm gonna surrender my peace because I'm gonna stop fighting for what I know is mine. I'm gonna surrender my healing because I don't want to contend in prayer. So don't forfeit. So what happens is Esau then develops this, what I call a victim mentality, where he feels like he's a victim of the circumstance. He despised his birthright. He feels like he's a victim of what happened to him. And you can read on and you can see how all that plays out. Let me, let me tell you, there's a big difference between a victim and a victor. a victor. A victim says, I'm finished. See, there's nothing I can do about it. But a victor in Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus has won. Is anybody getting this this morning? See, a victim says... It's just whatever's going to happen is happened. And, and listen, because of the things that have happened to you, and I know there are horrible, I've pastored long enough to know there are horrible things that happen to people. And, and what happens is eventually we just start to become a victim of the circumstance, a victim of the relationship, a victim of our finances, a victim of the cycle, a victim of the marriage, a victim of all of these things. And we just assume that there's nothing that we can do about it now. And we just surrender to this victim mentality. And and somebody, you know, some people will say this and they'll kind of label this story between Jacob and Esau that Jacob stole Esau's birthright. But that's not what happened. Jacob didn't steal Esau's birthright. Esau surrendered his birthright. See, some of us in our life, we've got it it flipped. We've got it all wrong. We've looked at our situation and our circumstance and our relationships and all these things, and we think we have been stolen from, and maybe, maybe the issue is, yes, Satan, the enemy, he is working to steal, kill, and destroy, but at the same time, we gotta be honest and we gotta ask ourselves, have I been just simply surrendering? Have I just been giving it up? So I'm gonna have the worship team come back up, We'll read one last scripture as they do, Hebrews chapter 12. We can see this played out. Verse 16 it says, That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. See, Satan may, I know this, he's out to steal your peace, he's out to steal your joy, he's out to steal your calling, he's out to steal your relationships, he's out to steal whatever he can steal. And some of us need to to get real with God right now and say, am I allowing, am I surrendering this to Satan? Do I have a victim mentality about me? And and what we're gonna do here in a minute, if that is you, we're going to pray for that to be broken off of you. We're gonna be praying for that to be evicted out of your life. You say, well, how can I as a believer have some spirit at work if I'm a believer? I mean, like I'm a believer, right? So how does that work? Well, let me me just put it this way to kind of help some of us out. How many of you guys have ever had a thought that you knew was from the enemy? Has anybody ever had a thought that you knew was you like that was not me? That was from Satan. Well, how can that happen? You're a believer. How can you have a thought from the enemy when you're a believer? It's because we're made up of three parts: we were body, soul, and spirit. The thought didn't happen in your spirit. The thought happened in your soul. It was your mind. It was your will. Your emotions. So if you can have the enemy trespassing your thought life, you certainly can have a spirit at work trying to influence your soul, trying to influence your thoughts that then we give entertainment to, that then develops a stronghold or we give place to in our soul. This simply needs to be evicted out. We just need to tell, you're trespassing. You do not belong. In my mind, my will, or my emotions, you do not belong here. You do not belong in my soul. I am no longer creating a home for you here. And so we're gonna gonna be here praying for some of us to to see that happen in our life, to be set free. So would you guys stand up with me as we get ready to worship God? Because one of the ways we do win the battle is simply by lifting up the name of Jesus. And so we're gonna do that. But if that's you, if you recognize these areas of your life, like, yeah, I'm trying to take a shortcut to something that would normally be a process, or I put God in a box, and I've always just kind of thought, this is the way things are gonna be, this is the way that I am, or maybe you've recognized that you've been surrendering ground to the enemy, and, and so you've developed a victim mindset. Listen, this is the moment when we can walk in freedom. I promise, I met with all my heart, I believe that people will walk out of here freer than when they came in because of the power of Jesus, Amen. So God, we thank you for that. We worship you, we lift you up. We exalt your name. We exalt your ways above our ways, your thoughts above our thoughts. And Lord, we just surrender our thought to you, not to the enemy, but to you, to your ways, what you think, how you act, how you go. We say we are following you, not after our feelings, not after the circumstances, not after the enemy's ways, but we follow you and we worship you right now in Jesus' name, let's do it.